Good morning. We have a special day today. We have a lot of guests on campus here for our See You Monday. So if you are here visiting, would you stand up and let us welcome you to chapel at Cedarville University. Thank you for being here today. Well, just to bring you up to speed, we have been walking through the book of James in a sermon series entitled Steadfast Faith for Trying Times. We are in James chapter 4, verse 13. So if you have your Bibles this morning, open them up to James chapter 4, verse 13. We'll go through verse 17. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, pull out your iPhone, your iPad, whatever you have, get to the right app, click past all those other apps, scroll to the right location, James chapter 4, 13 through 17. It was in 1860 that Milton Bradley invented the game called the checkered game of life. Have you ever seen it? Probably not. This was the original checkered game of life. If you could see the squares up there, which is a little hard to see, but maybe you could pick out a few of them. It says things like gambling sends you to a square called ruin. Intemperance would send you to a square called poverty. Idleness to disgrace, crime to prison, and perhaps most interesting for me, politics leads you to the square called cowardice. <laughs> I didn't make the game. I'm just reading the squares. On the positive side, Cupid led you to a square called ring by spring. I mean, matrimony. <laughs> Sorry, I've been seeing all your Facebook posts. Matrimony. Industry led to wealth. School led to college. Honesty would lead to happiness. Bravery to honor and influence to a fat office. The game ended when everybody reached happy old age. Games change as culture changes. As our culture shifts as to what's important, so the games reflect the culture. It is a mirror to us to allow us to see where we are. On his 100th year anniversary, Reuben Klamer, a toy game designer born in Canton, Ohio, oddly enough, created the modern version. You probably have seen this version. You may even own this version. The game changed and continues to change even from my time to keep up with culture. They have a version now that has no cash. It is a cashless society. It just has a card that you can swipe. It keeps record of all of your money that you earn on this cashless card. They'll probably put a chip in your hand at some point in time, but that's another story for another day. But listen to the product description as it evaluates our own culture. Do you have what it takes to win at the game of life? You do it by choosing the life you want. Go to college, take the family path, have kids, see what happens. When unexpected twists change the game, will you receive a fortune and lose it just as quickly as you got it? Will you need a bank loan to pay off debt? Everyone reaches the end of the game at retirement. Everyone pays their debts and adds up their wealth. The player with the most money wins the game. So make sure it's you. It's all your choice when playing the game of life. Does that reflect the culture in which we now live? Did you notice the words that are so striking at the end of this product description? It's all your choice when playing the game of life. Is it all your choice? For believers, is it really all your choice? There's one thing for sure. You play the game of life, you take out all the pieces, you play it, you fold the box back up, you put the, the, the board back into the box, you put all of the pieces into the box, you put the top on the box, and then what do you do with the box when you're finished playing the game? You stick it in a drawer and you close the drawer and there's absolutely nothing left, right? 
I fear that many choose to live in this world by the same product description. It's all my choice. I can do whatever I want. It's all about whoever ends with the most toys wins. It's all about how much money I have at the end of this life that defines whether I've been successful or not. And I fear that too many people think it's all about me. It's all about my choice. It's all about my decisions. And as it's all about me, at the end of their life, they look at their life and their life is then taken up and folded and put into... A box. And if I were to say to you, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today and begin to describe your life, what would we say about you? Has it been all about you? Has it been all about your choices? Has it been all about you living life for me? Is it all about my way? Or would we say something different about you? If your planning has been all about your choice, if your life has been all about you, if your life you haven't recognized that at the end of the day, you're just gonna get put in a box and what do they do with the box? They take the box and they stick it into the ground and life goes on and life moves on. It's the things that you have done in this life that money can't buy and that death can't take away that are the things that are gonna matter. The things that you do in this life that matter for eternity, that's the things that will last. Those are the stories that will continue on when you're part of God's great plan and not live life for yourself. What are they going to say about you when you get put in the box? James has something to say to us about this. James talks to us in this text about the sinfulness of planning without God. If you're living your life and you're just out for whatever decision you want to make, whatever fun you can have, and you're planning without God, James has something to say to us this morning about this in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. The word of God is God's communication to us. It's as though we were in his presence. So out of honor for the reading of the word of the Lord, would you stand as we read this text? James chapter four, verses 13 through 17. He says this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Dear Lord, I pray today that you would just help us to catch a glimpse of how we should live our life, how we should pursue you how we should allow you to guide our steps, and Lord, the arrogance and the pridefulness it is when we think that we control our destiny. Lord, may you be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. Our text here in James chapter four begins where he talks about planning without God. He says, come now. Come now is listed in James twice. It's here in chapter four, verse 13, and in chapter five, verse one, which we'll hit on next week. It's an expression that tells us that he's about to issue a warning. He's about to give us a caution. In this caution, he warns us about the sinfulness or the arrogance of planning without God. It's like he's saying to us, come on, man. Come on now. You know better than this. You know you're not supposed to do this. Come on, get with the program. Don't plan without God. Look at the arrogance here. He's giving us that warning. And he begins by saying, you who say... Now, we should take note of that. 
Often our words, what we say, although not the most important matter, often our words and what we say indicate the disposition of our heart. James notes that the orientation of our heart comes out in the words that come out of our mouth, and we've already talked about that disposition of the heart earlier in chapter 4, where if you desire to be a friend of the world, it's going to make you an enemy of God. And so here he says, you who say, those whose words are coming out of your mouth, and you're not demonstrating the humility of 4, 6, or 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 10, you're demonstrating a prideful arrogance that says, I've got this under control. I know what's taking place here. I've got this thing handled. This is all in my power. And then it proceeds to describe a scenario. Perhaps this would be the modern-day business plan. Perhaps this is the modern-day strategic plan. It describes a person who says the following things. Number one, today or tomorrow. He gives timing. Number two, we. We're going to go. And we're going to go into such and such a town, so you have a location. We're going to spend a year there. We're going to trade, and we're going to make a a profit. So they have this business plan about what they're going to do. And you look at this at first blush, and you say, there's nothing wrong with this. What's wrong with this? We have business plans, strategic plans, all of these type things. But in this scenario, you see that it just says we. It never says they pursued God. It never said they sought God's will. It never said they asked God what they should do. They have a plan. It's their plan. They are the one that formed it. They are the ones that own it. I'm reminded of the words spoken by that modern-day theologian, Andy Minio. Any of you guys know Andy Minio? The social club? Yeah. Here's what he says. Quote, want to make God laugh? Then tell him your plans. End quote. Many people could testify to this. I'll never, and then you do. I'll never date a woman at seminary. Not only did I, I married her, and she's sitting right down here in the front row. I grew up in South Carolina. I'll never move north. Some of you, at this point in this sermon, may be thinking, oh, I like this. Because you hate to plan. How many of you hate to plan? There's about three of you that admitted it. The rest of you in here know it. Some of you know it's true. It's okay. It's okay to hate to plan. Some of you in the room hate to plan so bad that when I mention the word plan, your blood pressure goes up. The thought of planning makes you actually want to procrastinate. (laughs) I'm going to put that off. I'm not going to do that right now. I don't want to plan. You look at somebody else's plan, your pulse goes up 10 beats a minute right off the bat. Your blood pressure is rising. You have to turn away. I can't look at that. It does bad things to me. I break out in sweats when I look at your plan. Your life philosophy is hakuna matata, right? No worries. That's right. Maybe it's, don't worry, be happy, man, right? Just relax. Put your plan to the side. Let's enjoy life a little bit. We don't need one of those. Perhaps you've changed your major eight times in two years. And this is your life strategy, and you are thinking at this moment in time, I have found my new life first. Don't go there just yet. Some of you in the room are thinking, I don't like where this is going. Is he a heretic? Is he going to talk bad about planning? Because you see, you are the type of people that make a plan for everyday task. How many of you are the planners? The planners are much more readily able to admit that they are planners. But some of you are not just planners. Not that I live or know anybody that does this, but some of you actually plan life in such a way that you have a box at the top of your to-do list that says create the to-do list. 
And then you have a box at the bottom of your to-do list that says, I finished the to-do list. That's just so you could check extra boxes because every box that you get to check or put an X in brings a smile to your face and makes you a little bit happier for that day. How many of you are guilty as charged, right? All right. All the planners in the room, blood pressure, our non-planners just went up 10 points, but that's okay. Some of you plan so well that you have different colored markers for each of the things that you're planning for and erasable markers just in case you happen to put it in the wrong color one day because that's not acceptable. I see some of you laughing. You are guilty. I can tell it right now. I could point to you and that would be fun, but it wouldn't be right, so I won't do it. Some of you, your systems are so complicated, you have to explain them for hours to others. NASA can't even figure out your planning system, but you have it down pat and it brings you great joy in life. Some of you are there. And right now you're thinking, I don't know if I like where this is going. But see, the problem that James is addressing is not planning or not planning. He's addressing the problem of planning without God. If you are planning your life and you're saying, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do next. Here's what it's going to look like. This is my Disney story. This is my happily ever after. And you've never once committed that plan before the Lord. You have never, and I'm not talking about taking your plan to God and saying, God, here's my plan. Bless my plan. I'm talking about the fact you've never gone to God to say, God, what is your plan for my life? You may have taken your plan to him and said, God, here's my 10-year life strategy vision. I want you to make it happen. But you've never gone to God to say, God, what would you have me do? God, how can I pursue you? God, how can I follow you? In other words, we think of ourselves as the rulers of our own universe. We think of ourselves, as William Ernest Henley writes, I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. That's not right. Now, we should plan. Proverbs 6, 6 tells us to consider the ant, look at his ways. Proverbs 15, 22 tells us that by the counsel of many, the plans are established. Planning is a good thing, but planning without God is arrogance. Why? I'm glad you asked. James walks us through it. It is sinful to plan without God because, number one, we do not know the future. Look at verse 14. Here you've made a plan. You've said you're going to go to such and such a place. You're going to go tomorrow. You're going to stay there for a year. You have presumed that you can make all of these things happen. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that not only do we not know the future, as he says here in verse 14, of what's going to happen tomorrow, but we don't even know what's going to happen today. Sitting right here in this auditorium, any one of us could have a vibration in our pocket. I'm reaching for my pocket because this is where I keep mine. Some of your vibrations would be in other pockets. And you could look at that cell phone and it could have a phone call. And with that one phone call, life could change for you. At any moment, life could change. Walking out of this auditorium, leaving to go somewhere else, life could change for you. And just a few examples of how it has changed, even on this campus in this year, just to bring to mind how frail our life is. We don't know the future. You think about Jen Taggart, whose life changed forever. You think about Adriana Reynolds, a common sickness over Thanksgiving, turns into a battle for life in the hospital over multiple months. I think about Aaron Lynn and his journey with Hodgkin's lymphoma. I think about Cresslin Van Dyke, who had to go through brain surgery last semester, and so many more that we could list amongst our student body. I think about those of you that have lost loved ones, that have lost fathers or mothers, that have lost grandparents, that have received that phone call that changed life for you. I think about those injuries 
that have changed things in your sports dreams. I think about those of you that try out in the fall for Heart Song with your mind set on this is what I want, and you don't make the, the, the Heart Song team that you wanted to be on. I think about those of you who are going for a degree plan, and when it comes time to get in that degree plan, your plans are changed and shifted, and you have to go in another direction. I think about all these things where we don't know the future. And for us to make our 10-year plan and say, this is it, this is what's going to happen, and never take it before God, never put it before God, never in the attitude of our mind or the disposition of our heart to know that God could change all those plans in a moment, the arrogance and the pridefulness that that displays on our part to think we are that in control, guilty as charged. We do not know the future. I think about several faculty and staff who come to mind just this year who are battling and have been battling major health issues. Life changed with a phone call. I think about relationships. There's not everybody has the happily ever after. Some have the relationship that breaks up and you're devastated and you're destroyed. And you're wondering what in the world happened? My life is shattered. This is not the plan that I thought would happen. God, what's going on here? Well, this verse actually gives us encouragement because we don't hold the future. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we know who holds the future. Your future plans may change, but God never changes. God is faithful and you can trust him. This is freeing. Think about this. If I'm trying in my own power to control everything that's going to happen and I have to orchestrate it all, the stress, the anxiety, when every little turn goes in a different direction, my blood pressure rises, I have a sleepless night because things aren't working out exactly like I want them to work out. And when things begin to crumble or fall apart, I get depressed. I go into this sinful anxiety. I get in my own funk because it's all about me and things aren't happening like I want them to happen and life falls apart. And some of you are there right now. But when I give it over to God, and I say, God, I'm going to plan, but God, I'm going to pursue you more than I'm going to pursue anything else. And God, you have my blank check. You have my blank sheet of paper with my name at the bottom of it. You write my plans. You give me my orders. As earlier in James says, we line up our will under submission to God's will. We pursue God. That's freeing for me because that means all I have to do with my life is pursue God. I'm going to do it with excellence. I'm going to do whatever assignment he gives me next to the best of my ability. But I understand that God may shift it. God may change it. He may send me on a different path. And if he does, that's okay. I'm just going to pursue God and trust the details to him because God is faithful and I can trust him. And while I don't know the future, he does. That gives you a peace. Things don't happen the way you want them to. You go to sleep at night. It's okay. God's in control. That boyfriend or that girlfriend breaks up with you that you thought was the one, it's okay. God's got something better for you. He's in control. That major shifts, and you understand God knows better than I know what I need to be doing for his glory. It's okay. God's in control. It doesn't mean we're lazy. It doesn't mean we sit back and don't work hard, but it means we don't have to control everything, and that is freeing to us. We do not know the future, but God does. Why is it arrogant or sinful to plan without God? We don't know the future. It's the second reason it's arrogant or sinful to plan without God. We can't control the future. We are a vapor or a mist. Look at what it says here. It says in verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow may bring. What is your life? For you're a mist or you're a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And that word appears and that word vanishes. James is actually playing on the exact same root. Uh, To play on the root in English would be kind of like saying you appear and then you disappear. 
It's the exact same root there, just to emphasize the fact that our life is so short. So I thought about how could I show you how short your life is? And I like to hunt. Anybody like to hunt? So I have a hunting thing that I'm going to pull out. This, this is shaped in the form of a grenade, but it's a plastic. It's not a real grenade, okay? So don't, I, you know, I was worried about, do I bring a grenade into chapel? This is probably the first time that's ever happened, but th- this is a pretty awesome grenade, though. This is a wind scent grenade. This is actually developed by uh, some people who graduated from Cedarville and have connections to Cedarville. If you are a hunter looking for scent coverage, windscent, W-Y-N-D, scent.com. Go check them out. This is pretty awesome, all right? This, when you're hunting, you want to know which way the wind's going, so you test it. This is pine scent. I did not bring some of the other scents that some of you could imagine I might use in a chapel service. This is pine, so we'll have a nice pine smell here at the front of the stage after chapel's over. Do you want to see which way the wind's blowing? Watch, watch, let's see if we can get the mist to work here. Okay, you see it? How long did that take? Let's count. You ready? That just means I get to squeeze this again. All right, am I, have I got it? Am I good and steady? Let me get the branding out here. All right. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004. How long did it take? It's gone, isn't it? Where did it go? Can we get it back? The wind in this chapel never goes the same way twice. (laughs) But it's gone. As quickly as this vanishes, your life, even though you're only 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, will be gone. Talk to some of our older faculty members in the room and ask them how long it feels since they sat in the seats where you sit. Talk to mom or dad who are bringing you to college and can't believe that the son or daughter that they brought home from the hospital yesterday in diapers is now going to college. Don't, don't ask right now, though, because mom might start crying or dad might start crying, too. But the thoughts of how fast life travels, and here James brings it to our mind. He says to us, and he challenges on it, and he says, what is your life? For you are just a mist. You are just a vapor. You appear, and then you disappear, and it goes just as quickly. That was a nice pine smell there. I like that. <laughs> Compared to eternity, it's there and then it's gone. It's done. Do you see it? Four seconds of a chapel service is a very small portion of a chapel service. And yet that's even more than what your life is going to be in all of eternity. And for us to think about our lives as having that level of importance, our lives as being that so central to the entire universe that we get in our minds, I am the center of the universe. It's all about me. Think about the arrogance of that statement before God that has always been and always will be. For us to say to God, God, you may know everything. You may have been around for a long time. You may be all powerful, but I got this. I know what I'm doing. God, I'm in control because you don't know how smart I am, God. I am. Who gave you that intelligence? God's sitting up there looking at you thinking, how arrogant are you? And he's just told us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And here James is reminding us, you plan without God and God will show you your plans. It's kind of like that mom or dad saying to that rebellious, arrogant young child, oh, you just wait, I'll show you a thing or two. And God's up there with all the infinite power in his patience and in his grace still saying, I got to teach you a few lessons. Learn the lessons from reading James. Don't learn the lessons from needing to be humbled in your own life. Here he says, you're a mist, you're a vapor. 
Now, most of you in the room are followers of Jesus Christ, and so I have fashioned this message towards that. But there's another message here for those of you that are rebelling against God Almighty. There is a message for those of you that would say, I don't believe in that, I'm not putting my faith in that, I'm not putting my trust in that. And there's a box over here that reminds us frequently that if you are rebelling against Christ, you really are a vapor or a mist. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. What are you going to do with Jesus? If you're here today and you don't have that relationship with Jesus, you're not promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to get it right. If you're a guest here on this campus and you're not sure what to think about Jesus Christ, the most important question that you could come and ask at one o'clock in the theater is how can I be saved? And we'll be happy to answer that question with you. Our life is a vapor. Don't waste it. Don't let it fly by. Don't let it be gone, but use it. Job 7, 7 and 7, 16 compares life to a breath. It's gone. Job 7, 9 compares life to a cloud that fades and vanishes. We watch them roll in at night. We watch them roll out in the same night. We watch them come in in the morning. We watch the fog or the mist that was here this morning. I haven't been outside to see if it's gone, but it'll be gone before the day's over. It was here and then it's going to be gone. And that's us. And it's a constant reminder when we see those clouds, when we breathe out, when we see that candle flicker, when we see that mist, when we see that vapor, we understand that our life too is that short. And as we see those things, we should be reminded, I cannot waste the precious days that God has given me to make a difference. Nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. I cannot wait to share the gospel with somebody that's lost because I don't know when they're going to be put back in the box and their days are going to be over. James 1.10 tells us about the rich man and his humiliation. He's like flower of the grass, for he will pass away. The sun rises, scorching heat. The grass withers, the flowers fall. Luke 16, Luke 12.16 talks about the man who built bigger barns, not knowing that that night his life would be required of him. And here is my life, and here is your life. And this is what we get before it's gone. Don't waste it. Make sure you use it for the glory of God. We do not know the future. We cannot control the future. And we must recognize that God is in control. Look at what he tells us next. What's your life? It's a mist. It appears. It's gone. Verse 15. Instead, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. Look at what he says closely. Instead, what we ought to say, the words that come out of our mouth should show a meditation, a disposition of our heart that says, if the Lord wills, God's in control. I recognize that. What is God in control of? We will live. God is in control of our very existence, our life, our breath, our health, all that we have, not the great plans we have, not the intelligence of passing the test, but even the fact that we woke up this morning is a gift from a gracious God, and we should be thankful to Him that we are here, that we are able to be here, that we can breathe, that we can go to class, that we can study, that we can use our minds for His glory, that we can eat food, that we can enjoy the things of life. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So you didn't get into that major. God's in control. So you're not sure how you're going to pay for expenses. God is in control. So you lost the girl or guy of your dreams. God is in control. So you had a medical emergency. God is in control. So one day you lose a child to miscarriage. God is in control. 
So one day you show up in the hospital with your children and you're wondering what is happening because you can't control it and you realize God is in control. Your life, your career, your schooling, your everything rests in the hands of a loving God whose eye is on the sparrow, so I know that he watches me. A God who clothes the lilies of the valleys, a God who knows the hairs on your head or the hairs that one day used to be on your head. He knows all of those and he cares for you in ways that you can't even imagine. God is in control. We commit our plans to him. We pursue him. We want what he wants for us. We submit our will to his will. We don't plan it our way. James is following his flow of thought here. Now we have to be careful because we tend to get holier than thou, right? So when you show up in Chuck's, the cafeteria today, and somebody says, will you pass the salt? Don't say, if the Lord wills, I will pass the salt. (laughs) That's not what he's talking about here, all right? He's not talking about a legalistic thing to where if somebody doesn't say, if the Lord wills, I will see you tonight at six. If the Lord wills, I will be in class tomorrow. Teacher says, study for your exam on Tuesday. If the Lord wills, I will be here to take the test, teacher. (laughs) Your teacher's just gonna get frustrated with you and your grades are gonna drop. So don't do that, all right? The point is not the formula. The point is the condition of how we plan. It's the heart disposition. The point is recognizing that we are not in control, that he is in control, that we can't control the future, but that he does. An Old Testament example, it just happens, my pastor at Dayton Avenue preached on this Sunday, King Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king in all the world, the greatest king. He looks out on all that he has, and he had already had this dream, he already knew it was coming, but he looks out on all that he has, and he says, look at all this I have created. And God says to him, you're going to eat grass. And he goes around like a cow of the field, chewing cud, eating grass for seven years, seven cycles of time. And you know what the most amazing thing is? It's not that God humbled him and sent him down to let him chew on grass for seven years. That's, that's pretty easy in the economy of God. All of this is pretty easy in the economy of God. But, but think about humanly, he sent him down to chew on grass. We've seen people go crazy, but then he restored him to the kingdom. How do you restore a guy? How do you follow a guy? All right, king, you're a pretty smart dude. Other than those seven years where you ate grass and water around in the, in the dew all the time. And yeah, I, I'm gonna trust you to run the country. Imagine what that debate would look like. How did the grass taste? How long were you out in the field? And God restored him. Why? The text tells us there. The text says to us that God did all this so that he could know, so that we could know that God puts people in places and exalts them and he takes them down as he wishes. We do not know the future. We cannot control the future. We recognize that God is in control. There's one last point here. We know better. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. What a strong word. James, up until chapter 4, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers. 20-something times, my brothers. In chapter 4, he gets on a roll. Adulteresses, sinners, evil. Come on, man. He's frustrated, and he says, you know better. You know that you should be humble before Almighty God. You know that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know that we have to humble ourselves. What is this thing you're doing, planning without God? Come on, man. You know better. Pursue God's plans. That's the right way. That's the way of the believer. It's arrogance. It's evil. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So I have bad news for you. If you were here this morning and you didn't know that it was wrong to plan without God, you do now. 
So now it's sin. Sorry. It's actually the right way for us to live as believers. We're not the master of our own fate. We're not in control. It's not all about us. It's all about him. And when you sign up for this thing called Christianity, you're signing up to do all the work, to do everything that God tells you to do, to give him your blank check, to give him your blank sheet of paper, to follow his will, and to do everything. And anytime somebody says, look at what you've done, you say, no, 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 I've got to reflect that glory back up to God because it's about what he's done through me. It's not about what I've done. There is no room for prideful arrogance in the Christian faith. It is a humility that says I am blessed to be a bondservant, to be a slave of King Jesus, and I'm happy to live my life for him. It's plural. This is talking about repeated acts of ignorance which says, keep the spotlight on me rather than put the spotlight where it deserves to be. So scripture tells us we should know the will of God. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, understand what the will of the Lord is. It tells us in Romans chapter 12 verse 2, to discern the will of God. The Lord's prayer itself says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we are supposed to be able to do this and know how to do this. So let me conclude with just some pointers at how you can do this. There's a lot of application up on the screen, but let me just conclude with some pointers here. If you want to know how do I plan with God, so James has told me planning without God's sinfulness, planning without God is arrogance. How do I plan with God? Start with what you know you should do. You read your Bible and there's some pretty basic things there. You know that you shouldn't sin. You know that you should submit to God. You know that you should share the gospel. You know you should do all these things. You don't have to go into great depth, Lord. Is it your will? You don't have to try to figure out, God, is it your will that I pray? Absolutely. It is his will that you pray. Pray without ceasing. Do the things you know you should do when you start off. Learn to walk with God. How do you know what God wants you to do? You read his word. God has revealed his will in and through his word. Read his word. Read his Bible daily. I see some of you working out in the gym, and you're much more dedicated to work out than I am. You walk in the gym, and you're planners, and I know you're planners. How do I know it? Because you pull out your journal, and you write down what you lifted at every single lift of every single thing, and you document, and this thing is super documented. If you're going to have a plan for that, if you're going to have a plan for how you're going to achieve your degree program, you should have a plan for how you're going to understand and read the Bible and know God's will. Have a plan. Read the Bible. Meditate on Scripture. Memorize Scripture. Develop a prayer life. I mean pray without ceasing, but I also mean develop a prayer life where you have a time and a location that you go to prayer, and when you go to God in prayer, you don't go to God and say, here are my needs, give me all these things. You go to him for what he can tell you. You allow that to be like the the snow globe that is shaken up, and you allow the sand to settle, the, the snowflakes to settle so that you can see clearly through the snow globe at that particular moment. Learn to detect and follow the conviction and leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to be honest with you here. Some of you can't detect the leading of the Holy Spirit because you're in habitual sin, and the Holy Spirit's telling you, get right with God and get out of your sin. And that's the reason you can't figure out what the Lord wants you to do is because you're in sin and you're a pattern of sin. Repent, confess, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Learn to detect what the Holy Spirit wants you to do in your life. Surround yourself with wise believers that can speak into your life with godly counsel. RAs, RDs, student life, Christian ministries, professors, faculty members, friends, student groups, discipleship groups, all of the things that we have put here, we have put here in place for discipleship. Make sure you surround yourself with wise believers that can speak into your life. You can't expect somebody who doesn't know you, but that may know the Bible to all of a sudden give you great advice for your life. They they don't know you. You need daily people to speak into your life that know the word of God, that love you, and that know you. Be involved in a local church. Chapel is not church. It's great, and I love it, and I miss it when I'm not here. 
but this is not your local church. Your local church, when you leave here, is where you should join, and it's where there should be babies crying, and it's where there should be old people with, with gray hair that you can go to and say, give me some wisdom, and you can have them adopt you as an adopted grandpa or grandma or whatever. You should have all of this diversity in the body of Christ that you can go to and gain wisdom from. It should be the place where you live life. Get involved in a local church as soon as you leave this place, but even before then. And when you get involved, if I hear that you're just being a consumer, I'm going to come find you and track you down, all right? We are not to be consumers. We are to be producers in the local church. Minister to others. Consider the circumstances. I'm careful on this one. I've measured it. Look out for God's direction, but be careful not to misinterpret an obstacle as a no. God leads us through circumstances. But sometimes I see people and they just say, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. The Christian life's not easy. Be cautious not to take a little obstacle and say, oh, that's a closed door. I can't do that. Be careful, cautious. That's why you have to walk with the Spirit. Obey immediately, completely, and with a joyful heart. And remember that God is faithful and you can trust Him. There are many of you here today, I'm preaching through a series. I didn't plan this. You're seeking God's will for what school you would have your son or daughter attend or you would want to attend. As you seek those plans, don't plan without God. Pray, commit it to God, ask God, God, where would you have me? God, where do you want me? God, where can you prepare me with academic excellence and prepare my heart to serve you well? Many of you here today are looking at degree plans or jobs or summer internships or opportunities of that nature. Don't plan without God. Many of you are looking at somebody else and you're thinking, that could be that special someone. Don't plan without God. It is arrogant, it is sinful, and it is prideful for us to plan without God. Today, if you get nothing else, get this. Pursue God's plan for your life and you'll never regret it because God is faithful and you can trust him. Dear Lord, I pray today that you would help all of us to pursue you with all that we are. God, help us not to waste our lives, but help us to find out where you want us and what you want us to do. And then, Lord, help us to do it with all of our might, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, help us just to pursue you with reckless abandon for your glory, for your honor, a passionate love for you and for the gospel. Lord, may your name be glorified, for that is our desire in all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, and you are dismissed.